Well, folks, I have to admit to you all today that I have been a bad, bad boy this week. (laughs) I am guilty of staying up till like one o'clock in the morning every night watching the Olympics. Am I the only one? All right. I, I'm addicted. I am glued to the set. Just unbelievable display of, uh, just, it's amazing. The swimming, uh, the diving, the gymnastics. How many of you got to see live the four by 100 uh, men's relay? How many of you were jumping up and down? Yes, that was unbelievable. I just, I was, it was amazing. And then, and then to see, um, the, uh, the girls gymnastics all around, uh, that was also such, uh, it's just amazing to watch. And then see, since I'm a pastor, I get, you know, I get sucked into all of these like, um, athlete profiles and, and all of these stories about the athletes and how they got there and everything that they went to get there. And, and I'm just a sucker for those things. And so here I am staying up till like one o'clock in the morning. And, uh, a couple of times, you know, I run upstairs to see if Heather's still awake. Are you awake? No. <laughs> you should see what just happened. Leave me alone. I'm sleeping. Oh, and I have no one to celebrate with. And a couple of times I, I tried to, uh, to get Cinnamon to stay up with me. And, you know, about 1130, she's starting to doze off. And I'm, come on, you will stay up, stay up. She's like, I can't anymore. And she goes, and then, well, I pay for it in the morning because I can't get up in the morning. But I just, I've had such a good time watching the Olympics. And I try and justify it by saying it's only four, you know, once every four years. And I was like, no, actually, it's every two years because we got the Winter Olympic. Oh, but still, it's only once every two years I can do this. Uh, but I certainly have had such an awesome time watching the Olympics and, and watching our athletes perform at such a high level. And really all the athletes. I get excited when I see China win because I think about, you know, the, the can you imagine winning the gold in your own country? And so I, I get excited for all of these athletes who put in the hard work and the hard, the long hours uh, to reach the pinnacle of their um, athletic ability and then perform at such high levels. I get excited. Um, but d- during one of the profiles that I was watching of, of Michael Phelps, that name ring a bell? Michael Phelps, incredible. Just d- down the road, Baltimore. Um, and watching one of his profiles, I was reminded about what happened four years ago in Athens when he qualified to swim in the four by 100 uh, men's butterfly and he just edged out his teammate to qualify and go um, race this race, one that the Americans were heavily favored to win gold. And Michael Phelps, the last minute, decided not to race and he gave that opportunity to his teammate who came in second to race and to, to race that race for him. And the team ended up going to win gold. And you think, that, that's just unbelievable. I mean, for an athlete who spends this much time, these long hours, for years, year after year after year, eating right, training right, 
to then give up the opportunity to win gold, to give it to his teammate. And you know, this isn't the only time that this has happened in sports. I remember a few years ago when Lance Armstrong was, was on the verge of, of winning one of his historic uh, seven wins at the Tour de France. And during the Tour de France, you know how it's divided up in stages and races within the race. There was this one race up the Mont Ventoux, which is a huge mountain. And it is an epic ride. In fact, riders long to, to win this race. And he was ahead of the field by minutes along with one other guy, an Italian by the name of Marco Pantani, who was ending the end of his career. And everyone thought Lance Armstrong was going to win. I mean, he had the strength. You can tell he had the power in his legs. And you, you, you knew that just with the 100 yards to go, 100 meters to go, he was going to sprint and win the finish, win, win that race. And lo and behold, right before the finish, he pulls off to the side and he allows Marco Pantani to finish and to, to cross the line before him. And later on in an interview, he, thought, he said to, to the interviewers, just, I've been watching him race all his career and I just I wanted him to win this epic race. And you think about what it would take to give up something like that. And it reminded me that it's not so much finishing the race. What's more important is how you race. You see, as Christians, for us it's not so much finishing the race as much as it is how we get there along the way. You will remember that uh, maybe about a year ago, I had a message for couples. And remember I talked about how sometimes as couples, uh, boyfriend, girlfriend, or maybe married um, husband and wife, we get into arguments and we get into debates and, and we're trying to, to solve a problem. And for us, the goal is to solve the problem. And in hopes of solving that problem, sometimes we say things that we shouldn't have said. And, and sometimes we're a little, we, we lose our temper or we get mad. And remember I said that... The goal is not to solve the problem. That's not the primary goal. The goal is how you treat one another as you're trying to find a resolution to the problem. And you see, sometimes as Christians, we fall into the same trap. We fall into this trap that says the goal is what's most important is making it into heaven, is having that eternal life. The goal is what's most important, and then we forget how to run the race to that end. I remember I was on a mission trip to Moscow once. I was at Andrews, and I took a mission trip to Russia, and I was in Moscow right there in in, in Red Square. And somehow I got to talking to someone, probably not surprising, I say somehow, but started to talk with someone there in Red Square and we got to talking about communism and and everything that has happened in, in that one square. And it turns out he was an atheist. He didn't believe in God. And he looks at me and he says, you know what the problem is with you Christians? He says, the problem is that sometimes you're so heavenly minded that you're no earthly good. Wow. 
That's right. Sometimes we get so caught up with the goal in getting there that we forget what our attitudes should be on the way there. I'd like for you to turn in your Bibles to the book of 1 John. 1 John. I'm reading from the New King James Version this morning. 1 John is located towards the very end of the New Testament, right before Revelation and Jude, and of course, 2nd and 3rd John. 1 John, chapter 4. 1 John, chapter 4, starting with verse 7. 1 John, chapter 4, starting with verse 7, says this. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. We must love one another. Now, if you're trying to figure out what does love mean? Probably the best definition that we, that we get in scripture is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. So keep your finger in 1 John because we're going to come back to that. But turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. It's been pegged the love chapter. You hear this read so often at weddings. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Starting with verse 4, it says, love suffers long, or love is patient. Love suffers long, it is kind. Love does not envy, love does not parade itself, it is not puffed up or arrogant. Love does not behave rudely, does not seek its own, it is not provoked, it thinks no evil. Some translations might read, keeps no account of evil. Verse 6, does not rejoice in sin, but rejoices in truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. It's a pretty good definition of what love is. Now I'd like for you to go back to 1 John. 1 John chapter 4 verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another. Let us be patient with one another. Let us be kind towards one another. We shouldn't be out seeking our own. We shouldn't be arrogant. But as we interact with each other, we should never fail each other. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. And then verse 8 just hits you right between the eyes. He who does not love does not know God. He who is not kind, he who is not patient, He who um, is envious, he who seeks his own, just go down the list, does not know God. You apply this to your life, however you see fit. 
But we've been called to something pretty big. We've been called to something bigger than ourselves. And in just a few moments, we will discover where is the source of this love. But make no mistake about it. We have been called to love one another. And today is the last message on a series that we've been talking about. The purpose of a church. Living God's purpose as a church and individually. And as we read this text, we realize that our purpose as individuals, our purpose collectively as a church is to love one another. Is to love our brother. Not only those here within our midst, but those in the community. We must show this agape love, this unconditional love, this unfailing love towards one another. We must be patient. We must be kind. We must not act rudely. We must not be arrogant, puffed up. We must not seek our own to save our own lives. No, love never fails. This is the kind of love that God calls us to. I'd like for you to read with me just a few verses before in chapter 3, verse 10. Chapter 3, verse 10 says this. In this, the children of God and the children of the devil are manifest. In other words, this is how you can tell the difference between a child of God and a child of the devil. He goes on to say, whosoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is he who does not love his brother. This is how you can tell. This is how you determine whether or not you are a church of God, an individual of God or an individual of the devil, a child of God or a child of the devil. This is how we can determine as a church if we are a church of God or a church of the devil. Do we seek his righteousness? And do we love one another? Remember, keeping in mind the definition of love found in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Is that the kind of love that is amongst us? Is that the kind of love that, that we share with one another? Or is the goal of making sure that my salvation is secure gotten in the way of how we run this race? Has the goal of making sure that I make it to heaven blinded us to the fact of how we treat one another? Does it stand true? That we're so heavenly minded that we're no earthly good. We have been called to love one another. And that is, a per- that is the purpose of this church. That is the purpose of our lives. Is to love one another. Read with me verse 16 of chapter 3. Verse 16 of chapter 3. By this we know love. Because he laid down his life for us. And we also ought to lay down our lives For the brethren. Did you catch that? Did you catch that? How many times are we so consumed with the work of God that we forget the God of the work? How many times or how often it is that we're so busy trying to do what's right that we neglect those around us who are in need, in desperate need of the love of God. 
We pass by people day in and day out. We pass people on the streets who are in need of love. Who are in need of us extending a hand and helping them. But yet sometimes we get so caught up in the goal of reaching heaven. That's right, God. I go to church faithfully. I return my tithe. That's right. I do everything that is required of me. But yet we pass by God's own children and we don't even flinch. Do our hearts break when we see someone hurting? Does our heart go out to someone that's in need? God says, listen, it's important to reach the goal. It's important for you to finish the race. But it's just as equally as important, if not more important, on how you're running that race. In verse 17, he says, But whoever has this world's goods and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? How is it that the love of God can abide in your heart if you see someone in need and you pass by and nothing happens? You don't even flinch. Your heart doesn't go out to to them. And yeah, we often come up with a lot of excuses. We, we seem to be really good at justifying things. Well, God, they're in that position because they put themselves there. They wouldn't be there if they hadn't, if they had not done what they did. Well, I just don't have time. I'll, I'll let someone else do it. You know, the pastor should do it. The elders should do it. And, and we, we justify our actions. We give all these excuses. But these words are for me, these words are for you, these words are for all of us. How is it, says, but whoever has this world's goods and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, how? How does the love of God abide in him? My little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. We need to be a church that's out Working in the community, showing and expressing the love of God with our hands, with our feet, with our mouths. Yes, as we speak words of encouragement to them. But that is what God wants us to do. That is how God wants us to run this race. You see, the scribes and the Pharisees had a hard time with this concept. In fact, if you turn in your Bibles with me to Matthew... Turn with me to Matthew. Matthew chapter 23. Matthew chapter 23, verse 23. Matthew chapter 23, verse 23. He says to the scribes and the Pharisees, Woe to you, scribe and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You pay tithe on mint and anise and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faith. These you ought to have done without leaving the others undone. Blind guides, you strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. They had a hard time. Why? Because their focus, their attention was set On what must I do to be saved? That was their focus. 
And that in of itself is selfishness. And as we know, selfishness has no part, has no place in heaven. And that was their focus. What must I do? And so they kept the laws. Yes, they kept them really well. But Jesus says to them, you've neglected the the more important things of the law. You've neglected mercy. You've neglected um, justice. You've neglected faith. You, You have neglected how that love now goes out to those around you. And you have shut up the kingdom of heaven from those who need it most. You remember the rich young ruler. He comes to Jesus and he says, what must I do? To be saved. You remember that? Where's the focus? Where's the focus there? Self. The focus is on self. What must I do to inherit the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus says, well, keep the commandments. He says, oh, good. Whew, I've been doing all of that. Jesus says, wait a second. Are you loving your brother? Are you loving your neighbor? Are you reaching out to those in need? Because that is the true test of whether or not you know me. Do you remember what it says in 1 John? If you do not love, you don't know God. And so he challenges him. Sell everything that you have and go give it to the poor. Let's see this love. And the Bible says that he went away sorrowful he went away sad because he was seeking out for his own good for his own benefit and while the goal is important yes jesus says just as important if not more is how you're running this race are you loving one another in the process are you loving one another in the process turn with me to matthew Matthew chapter 18. Matthew chapter 18. Because here we will discover where the source of this love is. Because maybe I've stepped on some toes this morning. Maybe um, I've challenged some people here today as you realize, wait a second. Maybe I don't know God as well as I thought I did Because my actions aren't showing the fact that I know God. Because I'm not loving people. And maybe why is it that I don't love people? Maybe it's because I don't know God. So where is that source of love? If you read with me in in chapter 18, verse 21, we will discover the source of this love. Starting with verse 21, it says, Then Peter came to him and said, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me? And I forgive him up to seven times. Okay, real quick. Where's the focus? Peter's coming to Jesus and he's saying, how many times must I forgive so that I fulfill the requirements of the law? Right? How is it that I can ensure my salvation is basically what Peter's saying. Right? And so he says, seven times? Now, see, Peter was being clever because back in that day, three times was the limit. And even still today, you hear people say three strikes and you're out. Right. So he was being clever because he said three times. I'll 
I'll go double that and I'll throw in another one for good measure. So he thought he was going above and beyond, right? So how many times must I forgive? Seven times? And then Jesus responds in verse 22. Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. Whoa. All right. God's calling us here to something that's greater than ourselves. He's calling us to something much bigger that is within us. And so where does this kind of love come from? Because it's not a kind of love that you can walk down, you know, go down to Walmart and buy it off a shelf. It's not some kind of potion that you can drink or a pill that you can take that's going to generate this kind of love and this kind of forgiveness towards one another. Where does this love come from? Now, before I answer that question, I want to take a time out because I want to share with you how powerful this text is. Jesus says you must forgive them 70 times 7. All right, you mathematicians, where's Greg? How many is that? Yeah, I see you mumbling up there. 490 times, right? 490 times. Now, does that mean that if I keep account of how many times you offend me, one, two, three, four. Hey, buddy, you're up to 350 times now. Jesus said 490 is your limit. I got to tell you, you're at 489, one more and you're out. Is that what Jesus is saying? Why? Ah, because now you're back to the requirement of the law and not the spirit of the law. And what Jesus is talking about here, I believe, is a reference to a prophecy in Daniel. In Daniel chapter 9, you don't need to turn there with me if you could, if you'd like. Daniel chapter 9, reason why I said that is I'm not going to wait once I find it. <laughs> Daniel chapter 9, Daniel had been given a vision and now the angel is sharing the, the, what this vision is. And in verse 24, he says, 70 weeks. Now, how many days is that? 490, 490, 70 weeks are determined for your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring an everlasting righteousness. And what I believe Jesus is saying here to Peter, not only is he's taking his attention back to this prophecy in Daniel, but he's saying to Daniel, wait a second, wait a second, Peter. You mean to tell me that I've given the people of Israel 490 years to get their act together? And now you're willing to write off someone just because they offend you seven times? I've been forgiving this city and I have given you a, a period of probation of 490 years. To bring an end to sin and transgression. To bring the everlasting gospel 490 years, that's what I have given you. And now you come with me with seven measly tries? So Jesus goes on to say, let me see if I can, um, if I can make you understand this. 
And so in verse 23, he says, Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. And when he had begun to settle accounts, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents, an unpayable amount. It would take a lifetime to pay this back. But as he was not able to pay, his master commanded that he be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and that payment be made. The servant, therefore, fell down before him saying, Master, have patience with me and I will pay you all. He comes before the master and he says, please don't destroy me. I know I owe you this money. Just be patient. Allow me to pay it back. The master, knowing that there would be no way for this servant to pay back this debt, says in verse 27, Then the master of that servant was moved with compassion, released him, and what? Forgave him the debt forgave him the debt now here is a source of this love because when we come before our god who paid the ultimate price and he looks at us and he says there's no way that you will ever be able to repay what you have done he looks at us And has compassion. And he says, I will forgive you of that debt. Now folks, this price that he paid is unmeasurable. The Bible says that we were bought back with a price. With the shed blood of Jesus Christ. With his death, he bought you back. He bought me back. And he gives us today the opportunity to accept this free gift of salvation into our lives and have the assurance of someday seeing him and living with him for the rest of eternity. That's what Jesus Christ has done for us. But yet, so often, we look at the brother or sister next to us and we say, how dare you? I can't believe And we hold grudges, we treat them rudely, we treat them unkindly, we make excuses, we justify our actions and say, you're there because you chose to be there. I wash my hands clean of having anything to do with you. And all the while the master stands and says, what? What? Have you just not seen the kind of love that I have given you? Have you just not seen what I have forgiven you from and the price that it took me to forgive you? And yet you are not going to forgive them or love them? Whoa, whoa, wait a second. And we read what this servant did. In verse 27, we'll read it again. Then the master of the servant was moved with compassion, released him and forgave him the debt. 
But that servant went out and found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii, which is nothing compared to 10,000 talents. And he laid hands on him and he took him by the throat saying, pay me what you owe. How dare you? You owe me this. How dare you offend me this way? So the fellow servant fell down at his feet and begged him, saying, have patience with me and I will pay you all. The response was the same from the debtor. And in verse 30, it says, and he would not, but went and threw him into prison till he should pay the debt. Do we treat one another the same way that God has treated us? Do we love one another the same way that God has loved us? It is the purpose of this church to go and love one another as God has loved us. Not only amongst ourselves here, but in the community. To go and to meet the need, to take an interest in them, to have our hearts bleed for them as they are in need. Why? Because we were wretched. We were in need. We had a huge debt. And Jesus Christ paid for that debt. Jesus Christ said, despite of what you've done, despite of who you are, I accept you into my family. And I will love you unconditionally. That is the source of this love. Because when we really, really experience the love of God, when we truly experience the forgiveness of God in our lives, we cannot help but to go and share and show the same kindness, the same patience, the same forgiveness, the same love to those around us. In verse 31, so when his fellow servants saw what had been done, they were very grieved and came and told their master all that had been done. Then the master, after he had called them, said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you begged me. Should you not also have had compassion on your fellow servant, just as I had pity on you? You see, folks, Jesus Christ paid a huge price for us to be forgiven, for us to be loved unconditionally. And when we experience that love and forgiveness, we can't help but to go and to share that love and forgiveness with our brothers and sisters, whether inside the church or outside of the church. I used, I lived in Fort Lauderdale for two years. Anybody here ever lived in South Florida? All right. So one of my favorite things about living in South Florida were the lizards. There's lizards everywhere. I mean, it's amazing. If you visited Florida, you know that there are lizards everywhere. Little ones, bigger ones, and they're just all over. And as a boy, well, I love lizards. My sister, on the other hand, doesn't like lizards. And I was in my room 
I was in my room one day when I heard this scream. Ah! Like, what is it? So I run into the It's a lizard! Oh my God, it's only a lizard! Kill it! I'm not gonna kill it! It's a poor little lizard, right? And so, after a few moments of running around, trying to corral this little lizard into a corner, you can usually catch them fairly easily. You lunge at them, not too forcefully, because obviously you don't want to squish, squish the little, the little guy. But I grabbed him, and I was holding him in my hand securely so he couldn't get away. And you can just, you can just see the lizard. I mean, just pretty heavy. And I, I just could think, man, this poor little lizard just, you know, what's it thinking, you know? And I can just imagine, oh my goodness, I'm going to die. This is it. I can't believe mommy told me not to go into strangers' houses. I just, you know, on and on and on. And, you know, I shouldn't have gone after that bug or whatever. I should have stayed outside on the palm tree as dad always told me. And I'm going to die, I'm going to die. And I tried to calm him down. It's going to be okay. I'm not going to hurt you. I'm going to release you. It's all right. But it didn't matter what I said. It didn't matter what I sang to this little lizard. It just would not calm down. Well, I took him outside, found a nice little palm tree, and I opened my hand and just, you know, as soon as it it felt the, the tension release, it jumped out of my hand. Within seconds, it was gone, never to be found again. I got to thinking, man, what would it have taken to have communicated with this little lizard and say, I'm here to help you. I'm here to save you. Sister in the other room wanted to kill you, but not me. Not me. I'm here to help you. I'm here to save you. I'm here to to give you a home. I'm here to set you free. And I got to thinking, what would it take? Would I have to become a lizard so I can talk lizard talk? Would I have to get, you know, little black beady eyes and elongated face? Would I have to grow a tail and, and, uh, um, you know, get suction cups on my fingers? It's a pretty gross picture, actually. <laughs> you start to think about that. I've created a monster. Would I have had to become a lizard to communicate with that little lizard? Probably. Would I? No. You crazy? Why in the world would I want to become a lizard? Why? I have no love towards this creature. I mean, I care enough to set it free, to let it go. But if my sister would have whacked it, ah, too bad. There's a lot more where that one came from. And yet, the distance between me becoming a lizard is so much smaller than the distance between heaven and earth. The distance between me becoming a lizard is minute compared to the distance between Jesus Christ in all His glory as God becoming a man. That is how much love He has towards us For the purpose of setting us free 
for the purpose of communicating with us and creating a way out for us. And when you think about the love that God must have for us, that he would send his only begotten son to die on a cross. That whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. When you think about that kind of love, you cannot help but to want to share that love with people who need to hear it. You can't help but to want to meet those needs. You can't help but to want to extend forgiveness to them. Why? Because we have experienced it. It is our purpose as a church, as individuals, to experience the love of God through Jesus Christ day in and day out. Because only then will we be able to live out our true purpose, which is to love one another as God has loved us. Our Father in heaven, Lord, we come to you with grateful hearts. As we know our past, we know what we've done, we know where we have been, we know the sins in our lives, and we know through your word that you love us in spite of all of that. You're willing to forgive. You're willing to start anew. And say right now, right here is the, the first day of the rest of your life. Just come to me. All who are are heavy laden. And I will give you rest. God can we now. Take that love and that forgiveness. And share it with the world that is in desperate need. Of hearing a message like that. God we want to be a church. That is about your business. We want to be a church that is about reflecting you. We want to be a church that's living in your purpose, which is to love one another as you have loved us. We thank you in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.